In the gospel text today, we hear the story of Jesus as good shepherd, which of course is a a theme throughout scripture, God as shepherd, Christ embodying the shepherd heart of God, us as his sheep and us as fellow shepherds with him. You'll notice in the gospel text that Jesus first hears from his disciples. They've been sent out on mission. They've come back and they begin to tell him everything they've done and said. And he says, you need to rest. And they steal away to a deserted place. But as they are hiding or attempting to hide, the gospel tells us that many saw them going and recognized them and they hurried to arrive ahead of them. So the, the crowds recognize Jesus with his disciples. They recognize that they're trying to steal away, but in their need, they press into them nonetheless. But then in verse 34, right in the middle of the gospel reading today, we have a shift from talking about them to talking about him. So verse 33 again, many saw them going and recognized them, and they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. As he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. It may seem like a subtle point, but I don't think it should be lost on us, that the disciples have already begun to be participants with Jesus in his mission, not only his sheep, but also his under-shepherds. And yet there is something they don't have yet that he has, and that is the heart of a shepherd. They haven't really caught the heart of God yet for these crowds. And this is why I think Mark tells us that the crowd sees them, but Jesus sees the crowd differently than the disciples see the crowd. Jesus sees them as sheep scattered without a shepherd. He has compassion on them, and he begins to teach. Today's Old Testament reading is, in fact, God's diatribe against the shepherds of Israel, the rulers of Israel, the kings, the priests, the elders, because they failed to care for his people. And so Jeremiah 23, 1 to 6, the Old Testament reading for today, God says that he sees what the bad shepherds have done, that they have scattered his people, that they have driven them away, and that they have not cared for them, they've neglected them. And he says, I see what you've done. My judgment is against you, and I will come and gather the sheep myself. I will be the shepherd since you failed. I will gather the sheep myself, and then I will raise up other shepherds alongside me, and they will care for you, and you will flourish. And he says, I will gather them from the ends of the earth. And the last word of the Old Testament reading today is, and not one will be missing. So there's a a diatribe against bad rulers, against bad shepherds, against bad pastors. That's what the word pastor means, shepherd. And then a promise from God. I will rise up like the shepherd. I will gather the sheep from all over the world. Not one will be missing. And then I will raise up other shepherds with me. And they will care for you. And you will flourish. The New Testament reading for the day is Ephesians 2, in which Paul describes, the Apostle Paul describes, what Christ has done in reconciling Jew and Gentile. He has, Paul says, broken down the middle wall that stood between Jew and Gentile, and in the body on the cross, he has reconciled both in one new humanity, 
That's what Christ has accomplished. In his death, suffering outside the city of Jerusalem, he reconciles Jew and Gentile. He brings all together. Christ is the good shepherd who does exactly what Jeremiah 23 promised God would do. He gathers people. Remember what John's gospel says. If I am lifted up, I will draw all unto me. So that in Christ on the cross, God has gathered all the sheep of the world from every corner of the world, and not one is missing. There is no one for whom Christ did not die. There is no one outside the reach of his compassion or outside the reach of his wisdom or outside the reach of his intention to save. He has reconciled all in himself. And Paul himself was a bad shepherd. Remember in the book of Acts, when we first encountered this man, Paul, he is militantly opposing the way of Jesus. He is standing, overseeing the stoning of Stephen, the, the Christian martyr, outside the temple. Paul has his own encounter with Jesus, the good shepherd, and then Paul becomes a good shepherd alongside Jesus. And the psalm for the day is the psalm that we prayed together just a few moments ago, Psalm 23. And that psalm, I think, gives us the pattern of what it means to be sheep of the good shepherd who become shepherds alongside the good shepherd. And that's the calling on every single one of us, not just to be gathered by the shepherd, but to become like the shepherd in that we do for others what he's done for us. That's the transfiguration that is intended. Remember in Jeremiah, the promise is not just that God will gather all the sheep, but that he will raise up other shepherds. This is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus is God, the good shepherd, the true shepherd who comes among us. What does he do? He gathers disciples to him and he makes them responsible for his work. But it takes time to become like the shepherd. It takes time to come to have the heart of God and the mind of Christ and the mind of the spirit. And that, I think, is what the gospel is pointing to us. The disciples have been out on mission, they come back, but what do they want to talk about when they come back from their mission? What they had done and what they had said. They want to report to Jesus what they've accomplished. But what does Jesus notice? Not his own work, but the need of the people. And so we see in the gospel that tension. The disciples are already being entrusted with shepherding others but they don't yet have full conformity to the heart of Jesus. They're starting to share in his work. They don't yet have his heart. They don't yet see what he sees. They're not yet moved with compassion like he's moved. And this, at the end of the day, this is what tells the truth about us. What comes into our heart when we see those who are without God? There's a, a famous line from a devotional writer, A.W. Tozer, that the most important thing about us is what comes into our mind when we think about God. But that's a statement that reflects the disciples in this passage. Your ideas about God, frankly, my ideas about God, frankly, don't matter that much compared to what comes into my heart when I see someone who is without God. Because if I think glowingly about God, but I don't respond as God responds, then I am, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, I am a sounding gong, a clanging cymbal, having the right ideas about God, but not having the character of God shaping the way that I feel for my enemies, for those who mistreat me, for those who are abandoned or seem to be abandoned by God. 
That is to be a hypocrite. That is to be someone who has the form of godliness, but doesn't live the power of it. And Psalm 23, I believe, narrates the transfiguration of the sheep into the shepherd. It, it patterns for us what we might call sanctification, coming to be holy as he is holy. So let's turn to that psalm now. Psalm 23, which you know, most of you, I'm sure, can quote it, at least the King James Version of it. Psalm 23. And I want to show you this development, this pattern of transfiguration, this movement from being sheep who are gathered to shepherds alongside the good shepherd. So it begins, as you know, with a claim about God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. So far, so good. But notice this is third, this is third person. It's talking about God. The Lord is my shepherd. And, and as always with scripture, there are lots of ways to hear the resonances. The Lord is my shepherd. That can be in some ways beautiful, deeply true. It's a, a confession about your intimacy with God. But it can also be deeply untrue. A kind of confession, an unintended confession of your belief that God is yours and not someone else's. Abraham Heschel it was a, a rabbi, worked with Martin Luther King Jr. during the Civil Rights Movement, famous author of major books on the prophets, and a book called God in Search of Man, gave a speech during the Civil Rights Movement about the evil of racism and how racism is idolatry. And one of the famous lines in that speech that Heschel gave is, an idol is a God who is mine and not yours. An idol is a God who is mine and not yours. And so in these opening verses, the Lord is my shepherd. If you mean, if I mean God is intimate with me, yes, well, and good. But if I mean God is my property, that God is my possession, that God is my God and not yours, then that's idolatry. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And again, depends on how you hear the resonance. There is no good thing God will withhold from you. But there are many things that you think are good that God will withhold from you. And there are many good things that are in fact good that are not going to be yours now. They are, they're coming, but they're not here yet. And so when we, when we say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, we have to make sure that our wants are aligned to his wants. That we are asking for what we should ask for. That we want what he wants for us. Remember, in those of you who share in the daily office with us, we pray virtually every day, Lord, grant our petitions as may be best for us. What are we saying when we say that? God, I want my wants to be true to your wants for me. I don't want to want anything I shouldn't want. Give me the desires of my heart first, then fulfill those desires. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And again, that can be true, but it also can be a statement in which you're suggesting or I'm suggesting that God is useful, that I worship this God because he always comes through for me. 
and the story of Scripture over and over and over again is that God is not useful in that way. Idols are useful. You worship idols because they come through for you. You worship the idol of war because you win your battles. You worship the, the God of the harvest because there's rain when you need it. But our God is God, whether there's rain or not, and whether we win the battle or not. And this is why the, the three Hebrew boys, as we know them, say to the king, listen, throw us in the fire. Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he does not, we're not going to bow. And in Hebrews 11, of course, we've got this long account of men and women of great faith, some of whom receive their children back to them in life, some who see the dead raised, some who win battles, but many who are sawn asunder and left for dead and hide in caves. And yet what marks them all is this intimacy with confidence in God in spite of sometimes what happens to them. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me. But the decisive turn comes suddenly in the psalm in the fourth verse. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, that's the way the NRSV has it. I like the King James better, although it's probably not the best translation of the Hebrew. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And do you notice what happens right at that point? For you are with me. Now, Notice the claim in verse 3 is that God leads me. He leads me in right paths for his namesake. Well, if God is leading you, how do you end up in the valley of the shadow of death? And if you read those first three verses, if you confess them or pray them naively, childishly, not in a childlike way, but in a childish way, you'll assume that for God to lead you means you never end up in the valley of the shadow of death. But that's just not who our God is. Our God is God in the valley of the shadow of death, as I'll say in a moment. And so we have this kind of irony. God is leading me in right paths, and yet suddenly I find myself in the valley of the shadow of death. And notice what has happened. We shift from the third person to the second person. You are with me. And this is where the sanctification, the transfiguration starts to happen in our life, where we shift from talking about God to talking to God in the midst of our trouble. That suddenly, I I was saying all of this about how God would lead me in the right paths, and then I found myself in the midst of turmoil, trouble, persecution, conflict, confusion, and then I started talking to God. You are with me. And notice there's a shift from what God is doing for him to just God's companionship. I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, but I don't fear any evil because you are with me. The book of Job ends, as you know, with God bringing judgment against the friends who've spoken wrongly about God. And he gives, he delivers this judgment. God, in the book of Job, delivers this judgment against the friends. And he says, you have not spoken rightly about me, but my servant Job has spoken directly to me. And so now you must go to him and ask for him to pray for you. What's striking about that is that God is not so much approving of what Job said as the fact that Job said it to him. It's not Job's theology that's right. It's Job's heart toward God in the midst of his conflict. The friends are the ones who talk about God. Job is the one who talks to God. 
And much of what Job says to God is accusation. Much of what Job says to God is complaint, lament, but at least he's saying it to God. And if we're going to become sheep who are also shepherds and who have the heart of the good shepherd, there's going to have to be a time in our life when we shift out of talking about God to talking to God in the midst of our trouble and talking honestly to God in the midst of our trouble. We have to be able to shift to that second person. God, you're with me. Here I am in the valley of the shadow of death, but you're with me. I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's astonishing how often I've heard this passage preached as God using the rod and staff against me. Think about how many times you've heard the reference here as a way in which God is disciplining you. And there may be some truth to that. But what's comforting about the shepherd is the shepherd protecting us from the lion and the bear as well as other sheep who act like wolves. <laughs> but this, this is really important. The reason you should be comfortable, and these, the rod and staff, by the way, are symbols of authority. In the ancient world, the shepherd is another name for the king. So when we talk about the rod and the staff, that's a way of the psalmist David celebrating the symbols of God's authority. Your authority comforts me. But what comforts me about it is that I know you're always with me in my trouble, and your rod and your staff are set against everything that would destroy me. Now, now hear me. There is in every one of us a lion and a bear. There is, a, as I said a few weeks ago, there's a false self in you that God has to save you from. But God is never against you. God's compassion for you is what moves him to care for you. And it's important to realize that God does discipline us. But his discipline is always only ever for our good. God is not interested in the way that he looks, the way that he comes off. He's not ashamed of us when we misbehave because it reflects poorly on him. He's afraid of the sin in us. That's the wrong way to say it. He wants us to be afraid of the sin in us, not because he's disgusted by it, but because he knows what that will do to our humanity, what that will do to who we are as persons. God is not angry with you because of your sin. God is angry with your sin because he cares for you. And so when you think about the rod and the staff of God, don't imagine a God who's waiting with a stick to strike your knuckles if you get it wrong. You're not the wolf. You're not the lion. You're not the bear. That may be in you, but he's the one who can separate the sheep from the goat, separate the sheep from the wolf in you without ever damaging you. And the reason it's important to realize that is if you think God is angry with you, if you imagine a God who is on pins and needles because of your misbehavior, then when you become a shepherd, you start to relate to sheep the same way. And now your rod and your staff are mostly used against the very people you should be protecting. If you imagine God is out to control your behavior, then when you step into responsibility, you're going to think your job is to control their behavior. This is precisely what we see with the disciples. Remember the story when they pass through a city and the city rejects Jesus and the disciples say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them? I mean, that's a use of the rod and the staff to destroy. That's a use of the rod and the staff to legitimize abusing those who seem to be against you. But the heart of the shepherd is the rod and the staff is never to, to harm. 
If there ever is any hurt, it is only to draw attention to the ways you've been harmed and to heal you. The hurt God brings is always the hurt of the surgeon, the hurt of the healer, never the hurt of the enemy, never the hurt of the one who is against us. And if that's true of God's relation to me, that has to be true of my relation to everyone else. That my presence, my words, my prayers, my teaching has to be for the healing of those who are hurting near me. My responsibility is not to forcibly bring them in line. God's not forcibly bringing you in line or me. And so we have to learn to shepherd the way we've been shepherded. Shepherded. Your rod and staff comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You you prepare a table before me or for me in the presence of my enemies. And this is the way of our God. I mean, we're going to live this in just a few moments. We're all going to come to this table in the presence of some of our enemies. Maybe not all in this room, but maybe at the homes we'll go to when we leave. Certainly in this city, in this world, our God is a God who always only cares for us in the presence of our enemies. And you can read that again, as you can read the opening verses, you can read this as as a, a claim of defiance, right? That God prepares a table before me to shame my enemies so they can see that God cares for me and not for them. And at some level that may be true if your enemies are sin and death and injustice. But if you're talking about people, the reason God prepares a table for you in their presence is because he means for them to sit down at the table with you. He's preparing a table in the presence of your enemies because he means to reconcile you. That's what Ephesians 2 says, that he's the God who breaks down the middle wall and reconciles all of us together in his body and his blood. That's what he does. When we come to this table and we take the broken bread and we take the the cup, we are anticipating God reconciling all of us together as friends at this table. But he doesn't just mean for you to sit at the table with your enemies. He means for you to serve your enemies. This is the heart of the shepherd. He prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies, not only so you can eat with them, but so you can serve them while they eat. Because that's what he does for you. Jesus says this outright. I am among you as one who serves. Jesus is not only at the table with us. Jesus is serving us while we're at the table. And we have to be that for others. And notice, now we've had a fundamental shift. We, were, we started talking about shepherd and sheep. Now we're talking about host and guests. We've gone from shepherd and sheep, a human being and an animal to human beings drawn together in the same space. And this is the work God works in us. He draws us up into equality with him. And that sounds shocking because most of us have imagined that our entire relationship to God is based in the fact that he's God and we're not. That that fundamental inequality is what guarantees the integrity of the relationship. God has the right to do with me whatever he wants because he's God and I'm not. But that's the slaveholder's mentality. That's Satan's mentality. God's mentality is that you are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That if in Christ he gives himself up for us, he will in Christ give us all things. 
that we, Christ says, I call you no longer servants, I call you friends. In Revelation, we start with an image of God on the throne, the one who sits upon the throne. And then we see the lamb who's before the throne. And then in the middle of the book, the lamb is with the one who's on the throne. And by the end of the book, you know what's happened? All the saints are gathered to the throne. What does Jesus promise at the very end of Revelation 3? To those who overcome, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. God's relationship to you and to me is not grounded in fundamental inequality. It's grounded in the fact that God shares everything he is with us. Everything that he is, is ours. It's a father-son, parent-child, spouse, friendship relationship. It's not a shepherd and a sheep. Fundamental inequality, fundamental difference. It is God gathering us into oneness with himself. And that heart has to be in us for everyone else too. We have to learn not to treat others like our sheep. They're our guests. If I ever treat an unbeliever or a believer who differs from me with any less respect than God has shown to me, then I'm not drawing them close to Jesus. I'm driving them away. If I ever treat anyone with any less respect than God has given me, no matter how wrong their theology is, no matter how broken their lives are, no matter how opposed to the truth they seem to be, I have to approach them from that place of compassion. If my heart is not broken for them, I should not open my mouth about them. If my heart is not broken for them, I should not open my mouth about them. And at the very least, I should restrict myself to saying those things to God alone. Never to them, never about them to anyone else. That's slander, that's gossip, that's envy, that's destruction. What we're called to is compassionate intercession. And so I end with this. You anoint my head with oil. Now we've gone from a, a, a sitting where we're being served at a table in the presence of our enemies to we're being the anointed ones. What does the word Messiah mean? What does Christ mean? The anointed one is now anointing us. You anoint my head with oil and my cup, or your cup in some translations, overflows. What's happened here? We've shifted from just a table set up in the presence of our enemies to the feast of a coronation. Now we are being made kings and queens. We are being made rulers with him. You are anointing my head with oil. This is what Peter couldn't get. In those last hours before Jesus died, Jesus wants to wash his feet. And Peter says, no, 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 no. That's not how our relationship is supposed to work. I'm the disciple. You're the master. John the Baptist couldn't get it either at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When Jesus comes to be baptized, no, 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 don't baptize me. I, 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 I should not be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. He, he understood their relationship to be fundamentally unequal. But Jesus with John and Jesus with Peter insists, no, that's not how righteousness is fulfilled. God is jealous for us, but not jealous of us. He doesn't need to claim his authority by subjugating us. His authority is manifested when we come to be kings and queens, friends, princes, co-rulers with him. When we step into our maturity. And that's what happens at the end of this psalm. Notice we started in the third person, we shifted to the second person, and then we end in the first person. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. 
Do you know what's being said there? You remember Jesus' last words to his disciples in Mark's gospel? These signs shall follow them that believe. In scripture, when you talk about something following you, it's a reference to the effects your life has. We often read this psalm as, as, as if we're running away from God and goodness and mercy are chasing us down. And that's, that's true. It preaches really well. But that's not the point of the psalm. What's happened is at the end of this psalm, instead of talking about what God can do for me, the psalmist is now talking about what his life will mean for others. And this is the conversion we all have to have. The first conversion in your life and my life has to be to God. We have to learn to love God. But that isn't enough. It's possible to love God and hate yourself. It's possible to love God and hate your neighbor. But if you keep loving God and you learn to love God as God loves you, then what happens is your life begins to overflow overflow with the same goodness and mercy his life overflows with. And the hope of Psalm 23 is not just that the Lord is your shepherd, but that you're meant to be a shepherd too. And that as hard as it may be, and as long as it may take, Jesus will keep shepherding you until what's happening in your life is nothing less than what's happening in his. And wherever you are, at home, at the restaurant, at work, maybe even at church, goodness and mercy will follow you. And you will dwell in the house of the Lord, not as a slave, not as a servant who shows up to do the work while others are feasting. You will dwell in the house of the Lord with the Lord as his co-regent, as his friend, as his partner, you will be not only a sheep, but a shepherd. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for that you've called us to this life. Thank you that you keep calling us to this life even when we're so terribly resistant to it. You are a good shepherd. You lead us, you guide us, you provide for us. But you mean more than to care for us. You mean for us to learn to care for others. And so my prayer for every one of my brothers and sisters in this room this morning is that we will yield to that call. And we will let you lead us to the place that we become not only good sheep in the fold, sheep that don't wonder, but we become shepherds who care for others the same way you've cared for us. Amen.